Well, here we are. It is time, Simba. If you understand that reference, you might be about the age where we should be working together. It's possible. But it is now one of three times a year that I'm accepting clients for my freedom framework, overcoming food sensitivities and increasing energy without unnecessary restriction. My goal for my one-on-one clients is to take them through frameworks and explore tools for achieving 50, 80, 90% of their goals in just a few months and show them how to continue to heal on their own so they don't need me anymore. Honestly, I think we're doing great one-on-one work here, helping women that would otherwise be falling through the cracks, thinking that they're just aging, that they're just moms, that they just, and it may be true that they just have stress when really those stress hormones and their other core systems just really need some serious support and some serious love to serve them for years to come without symptoms. So if you'd like to clear inflammation, eczema, food sensitivities, or improve energy and brain clarity, I'd love to chat with you. You can book a call with me at kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, and that link will be in the show notes. Welcome to the Less Stressed Life podcast. This is your host, Krista Bigler, private practice integrative nutritionist, helping people across the U.S. reverse digestive issues, eczema, and autoimmunity via phone and video consult. To learn more, visit lessstressednutrition.com. Now, on to the show. Okay, today on The Less Stressed Life, we have something a little inspirational for you, a lot inspirational. We've got Jim Stavis here, who is the first person to ever survive a triple organ transplant. Um, He's here to tell us his story. When he was 17, he was told he'd be lucky to live past his 50th birthday. At that time, he was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. Doctors expected him to be plagued by kidney and heart disease, blindness, and amputation before succumbing to diabetes at a young age. So really lovely prognosis they were giving him. He recently celebrated his 65th birthday. So what has been his secret to grow a successful steel company while raising a family and staying resilient in the face of incredible adversity? He has a new book out called When Hope is Your Only Option and an award-winning documentary, Source of Hope, where he talks about his secret to survival and how he works through these things. Welcome, Jim. Thank you. Thank you very much, Krista. Yeah, so it's we're, nice to be here. Yeah, and guess what? We like people that have been to the Midwest. Jim is a born and raised California boy, but he has been to the Midwest, to the Dakotas. So we think he's pretty cool. <laughs> and uh, I, I was, I was on your website last night, and I was getting a little teary eyed. It's like kind of emotional looking. It's, it does a good job of drawing in my emotions. Um, and I was watching a video about you, and you got diagnosed with the with type 1 diabetes in the 70s. Back then, it was a little different prognosis. And we probably should be clear about that, probably. Um, that In the 70s, what they told you about things. And now, I mean, type 1 diabetes is still, diabetes in general is still serious for all the all the conditions that were named. I worked in dialysis for a long time, so I'm very familiar with that. Um, but let's talk about what these years looked like for you, um, having that diagnosis in that decade and what that looked like kind of following up to more recently. Yes. Well, the world is a very different place today than it was back in the 1970s when diabetes was not that common. And certainly for me as a 17-year-old, I had no idea what was going on. So I learned rather quickly about how to deal with adversity at a pretty young age. And as you said in your warm-up there, the, the doctors had given me this pretty dire forecast for the rest of my life. And I needed to 
either shrivel up into a ball and just realize thinking my life was over or on the, on the flip side, take control of my life and use it as a motivator to kind of get my life going and, and uh, realizing that I had a shorter time span than my contemporaries at the time. So um, diabetes today is, um, can be a very normal part of your life. It doesn't have to be as life-changing as it was for me, uh, again, back in the early 1970s. So I, I always like to tell the audience that you know, you're not going to end up being a triple organ transplant uh, in order to live a very normal life. In fact, the odds are they're going to have a cure for it in the not-too-distant future. So things are much more optimistic today than they were back then. But let's talk about the, how that triple organ transplant happened. So okay. leading up to this happening, where were you? So my life uh, was was fairly normal um, during my 20s, 30s, and it really wasn't until I got into my 40s that some of the predictions that had been given to me back in the early 70s started to come to pass. I was having cardiovascular problems. Um, I had a near heart attack um, up in the, the mountains of Southern California on a retreat that we had gone to, and my heart stopped when I was up in a tree, which is a pretty crazy story. But, um, and fortunately for me, I survived that because I had a friend that gave me CPR at the time, which was very fortunate. And that was kind of the first of multiple um, heart issues, scenarios that I had had. And ultimately in 2004, my kidneys failed as I went into congestive heart failure. So, so both my heart and kidneys were not functioning, and I went into kidney dialysis. And that was really just pretty much a matter of time, whether or not I was going to make my 50th birthday or not. Mm-hmm. Um, again, the, the doctors had been kind of right on with their predictions. Um, at that time, I went to Cedars-Sinai, which is a big transplant hospital in Southern California, and this doctor, his name is P.K. Shaw, who was the director of cardiology there, had said, uh, you need a new heart, you need a new kidney, and best case, you need a new pancreas, which would get rid of your diabetes and preserve the new organs. The only problem is we've never done such a surgery, and I don't think it's ever been done before. So I looked at him and, and said, well, then I'm going to be the first one. And he kind of smiled at me as if I had no idea what I was saying. But at the mm-hmm. time, I was pretty, I was pretty optimistic, and, um, and, and it came to pass. So in 2005, I had a uh, one surgery, which was for the heart and kidney from one donor, and then came back in 2006 and got a pancreas from another donor. Mm. And now I'm, what, 14 years past that, and uh, everything's working great. I'm doing great. Which is a big deal, actually, because sometimes, I mean, I'm fairly familiar with kidney transplants, and sometimes they don't stick as long as we would like them to. Um, 
that just, it's just how that happens. And you had substantially more than that happen. Um, anyway, I, (laughs) I want to know, I guess, um, since I'm kind of familiar with the transplant piece of this, I'm actually kind of curious, how long were you on that wait list? Or, I mean, I don't think you were matched. You didn't have a live donor, obviously. Uh, so you had to be on a transplant list and, usually at that age, um, sometimes they prioritize people to the top based on what's going on, you know, or they prioritize younger people. Um, so I guess my question is, I wonder how this all fell into place. How long were you on that transplant list before you had the good fortune to get there? It's a big deal. It's a great question. It's a great question. Yeah, no, no, it's a, it's a huge deal. And, And the fact that you're aware of it makes it even more amazing because, uh, it is really rare when I speak to the medical community, and they hear about it, they, it makes their head spin. So um, the answer to your question, the short answer is it took about six, five and a half to six months. So I was listed in June and the surgeries were in November. Um, I was elevated in on the list because I needed three organs versus just one. Getting a kidney by itself can take five, six years here mm-hmm. in California. So for me to be able to get both a heart and kidney um, at the same time, pancreas pancreas transplants are a lot more rare. It's um, they're not that common because for the most part, let's say if you have diabetes, it's a lot easier to put somebody on a regimen of insulin right. uh, to, to manage the diabetes than it is to go through a whole ordeal of surgery and then the meds that you have to take afterwards. Right. In my case, in my case, it was the same meds. So it really, it really didn't change anything. It's the meds are uh, designed to prevent my body from rejecting the new organs. Mm -hmm. So, and those are lifetime. um, So anyway, yes. Over the course of my lifetime. So Mm -hmm. what is also, what's also unique is I, I have a relationship with my donor family um, which is rare, um, and we spend some good times together every year, um, and they believe that their son is literally living inside. My, as my heart beats, they listen to my heartbeat because they, they could feel their son still alive within me. Yeah, I saw that in the videos, and that's what made me kind of teary that – like, oh, that's really, a, I mean, that's just, there's not really a word for that. I don't have a word for it. Um, <laughs> five to six months is a very short timeline for a transplant. Um, I was interested to hear that it was the same in California because what I'm familiar with is it also takes five years to get a t- kidney transplant. This is bringing back some thoughts to me because sometimes we have people, I think, I don't know if this is, a, it probably is an advantage and disadvantage. You're surrounded by a lot of people. So they usually have a transplant within a radius. And so sometimes we would have um, people be on different lists in different big cities with a different radius to have a better chance of getting um, an organ sooner. Um, I don't know that that would be a thing in California. So you have more people, you know, a bigger population uh, area, but at the same time, you probably have more of a need at the same time. So it's kind of, it it sounds like it kind of evened out. Anyway, I know we're going to talk about inspirational stuff, but I was intrigued by the medical piece. And there are a lot of medical people that listen to this podcast. Um, So anyway, just, just thought that was 
very, very unique. Did you have side effects or did you have struggles post transplant? Because that's not an easy thing to bounce back from either. I mean, it takes a little bit. Sometimes it's really quick. Sometimes it's not. So how was your um, recovery time? Well, the the kidney was probably the easiest part. That's, that's again, you're probably more familiar with the kidney. That that was almost a non-event for me. My, mm-hmm. my the new kidney started working immediately. The heart was an interesting transition in that there's a there's a period where the new heart has to kind of get familiar with the new body that it's beating within, and the and the body needs to get used to the new heart. That's so there's it's kind of a transition period where we're almost getting to know one another. I know that sounds funny, but um, even even uh, something as simple as the first time I had coffee, this heart, which was came out of a 17-year-old boy, probably he had probably never experienced coffee in his life, and so the um, the heart was like beating out of my chest, and I thought, oh, oh my God, this is this is new. Mm-hmm. So, um, and then I also had um, periods where I'd have to literally um, almost tell like tell the heart, okay, we're going to bed now. You can, you can slow down, you can stop beating. And then when you'd get up the next day, you'd have to get it going again because the heart doesn't know when to kick in and when not to kick in because it's not familiar with the new body that it's, that it's residing in. So that's kind of an interesting thing. And And when you do a heart surgery, you cut a nerve, which is called the vega nerve, where, where it's where the heart communicates to the brain, and and the brain tells the heart when it's you know when it's time to do something or or when it needs when it gets nervous and your heart races that sort of thing. Well, that that nerve gets cut during the surgery, so you literally have to kind of get to know one another once again. So that's that was more of a difficult transition than let's say the kidney Mm. as far as the pancreas was that was that too was a transition kind of for a host of other reasons in that i had been a diabetic for essentially my entire life i mean all but 16 years of my life so i forgot what it was like to be able to not test my blood sugar that i could eat virtually everything uh, that that for me was just liberating like I can't tell you it was so different to be able to kind of live a normal life which I hadn't been able to for the most of my life mm-hmm. yeah which if, if you, I, go ahead yeah, go, go ahead well, I was just gonna say you go. when you're on dialysis your diet is even more restricted because it's it's a very clear, um, I mean, you have very clear indicators on a monthly basis or more often of how your diet's impact. I mean, so it's, it can be very limited. Um, so I don't know how long you were on that before you had a transplant. Was that so just I'm, five or six months? I was, no, it was a year. So okay. from one November to the next November, I was in dialysis, which is very hard. I mean, of all the parts of my story, uh, dialysis was, was one of the most difficult because I didn't know how long I was going to be on it. You know, was I going to be able to survive organs? You know, the waiting list for organs about 115 people across the country. Mm-hmm. And 
behind every day waiting for wins. So it's kind of thing. If I if I could tell your audience something is that you have to volunteer an organ donor because it really does save lives. Yeah, yeah. You know, True. and that brings me to another question for you is that you've got this successful business going on and you've got a family and this was take, this takes a lot of time. Uh, when medical care is taking so much of your time, how did you handle this? How did you, I think balance is an unfair word in your scenario, but how did you try to balance your work life and family? Did you just have great people you could rely on when you weren't there to give it your all? And tell us how that went. I was very fortunate to have a really good partner, a business partner that I started the business with back in 1988, and we were almost like brothers. So when I was down and going through my medical stuff, he really was able to keep the business running and were very good at kind of um, to kind of fill in each other's roles when the other person was unavailable or down. From that perspective, I was incredibly fortunate. And I also had a really strong network of friends who kind of were big supporters. I really did have a good support system for me throughout, which I think is fundamental. I think that an integral part of overcoming the adversity was having a lot of people in my corner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And that might be... Um kind of the answer on how you know uh, that you're going to survive, honestly. Actually, I'm going to go back a step because you were talking about the things that have to happen for your heart to function properly, which was a unique thing I've never really heard before. I've never talked to a heart transplant recipient and discussed with them how you have to help it start and, and whatnot and calm down. So anyway, my point is, while you were talking about that, I was thinking about something I say to people, which is some things you address structurally, like you put something new in, <laughs> you address nutritionally, you support this function happening, and you address emotionally. And so what you were telling me is that you have to address so much emotionally. And if you don't have that piece, it doesn't really matter what the other two pieces are sometimes, right? Um, if you don't have that community, right. if you don't have a community, it's easy for you to feel not so hopeful, which is really, which is really your platform, right? Yes, absolutely. And and I was very fortunate that I did. And I recognize the fact that not everybody has that. So sometimes, you know, you, you have to make do with what you have. And it's difficult to go out and make friends when you're kind of in a in a hard place. But I was very fortunate that I had a pretty strong network going in. Mm-hmm. And I think I think the other part that's such an integral part is having a belief system and an attitude that that you will overcome the adversity, that you can get through it and you can, you know, there is the other side. You just have to get there. And for me, that was really critical. That was part of my kind of optimism that started when I was 17 and, and given this dire forecast and how I was able to kind of overcome that forecast so that one day when I was given an even more dire forecast, I knew that I would get through it because I got through it before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, through this experience, you've kind of created some systems, maybe, uh, that 
that you've used to help you through some things. I mean, you call it maybe a secret recipe for making tough life decisions. Um, can you explain that a little bit? In my business life, I've, I've kind of learned through the years that you're confronted with situations and circumstances that are not necessarily of your own making, but you still have to deal with them. So you have to find a way to, you know, kind of overcome whatever the adversity might be. So how do you do that? You, you have to get educated, which means you got to go fact finding. You've got to um, kind of trust the people around you to kind of help you make decisions. And then ultimately, when you make a decision, you have to be decisive. You can't be wishy-washy. You have to kind of go forward with a strategy that puts you in the best place to succeed. And I think in business, the, the biggest difference between personal, let's say health, and a business decision is, you know, on the health side, it could be life or death. On the business side, you can make a mistake and just, it didn't work. Well, okay, let's course correct and go another direction. But you can't be afraid of making the wrong decision. You need you need to, you know, don't don't second guess, but get yourself in the best position you can to make the best decision you can. Mm -hmm. Right. Don't second guess yourself too much. Well, you talk about. I mean, I don't know if if you would call this the same thing, but you talk about your plan to overcome adversity. You call it endure and hope and prevail. Can you talk through that a little bit? Right. Because you said each one of them has its own blueprint. So I'm going to take some notes and I'll recap after you kind of tell us about this. Okay. So so the first stage is is pretty much when you're confronted with some adversity and. It could be a loss of somebody. It could be, um, let's say, breaking up or losing your job. It could be a health adversity like I had. It, whatever, that, whatever that does to you, you have to find a way to just kind of get through it. And that's, I call it the endurance stage, simply because it's not easy, but you got to find a way through it. You've got to face facts. You've got to kind of look in the mirror and realize what, what's in front of you and then kind of formulate a strategy to somehow see the other side, see that you can get through it. Um, and I kind of analogize it to the, the Nike ad, which is just do it. That sounds easy, but that's kind of what it is. Is No matter the, the pain, the, the sorrow, the heartache, you just have to get through it. And then, the second phase, which I call the hope stage, which is, is really the mental side, the piece where you put in place kind of a mindset which affects your attitude and your behavior. And that could be, that could be prayer, that could be uh, meditation, that could be going and get educated on the internet or seeing doctors that are going to get you um, knowledgeable about what you've got to do. But I think of hope in kind of an action, like a, hope is a verb, not as a noun. It's not just sitting on the couch and wishing. It's, it's actually doing something. And I think that that's critical to getting, again, through a tough stage in your life. 
And then the third stage, which is, I call it the prevail stage, is once you've gotten through the adversity, you've climbed the mountain, now what? What, what, where do we go from here? How are you going to use that adversity to change your life and the life of those around you going forward? And, and I kind of view that that's the stage I'm in right now, is that by using my story as a way to inspire others to get through their adversity, that to me is, is part of the process. How did you land on these pillars? I think... I think part of the process was just me trying to kind of take it apart after, after I got through it. And when I was writing my book, I was using personal examples of moments in my life, which kind of exemplified these stages that I was going through. It's not like as I was going through it, I was saying, oh, I'm in the hope stage. It, it really was more of, reflecting back and thinking, okay, now how did I do that? How was I able to get through this difficult time? And how might other people be able to get through their own adversity? So it's was, it was kind of a lesson plan, really, for how do you get through tough times? Mm-hmm. I like it. So to recap it, um, really knowing that the umbrella is adversity, but it's not just, I mean, we're talking about a health scenario, but it, we are all faced with adversity at different times. So the stuff that's kind of consuming your brain very frequently. I mean, I think that's an adverse situation. It's what is consuming my brain space that I need to move through because this thing is not healthy for me or it's not healthy to consume my brain space, even if I have to deal with it. I mean, it's how we're coping with it. So endurance is something I feel like I get to talk to a lot of people that are good at because a lot of people are good at kind of making things work, even if they're not feeling the best, right? Getting through it. And that's not to say that you have to do it like that, right? It's not that you have to, um, say, let me just going to suck it up, but you do have to get through life period. Like you have to wake up and move on and then start the next day typically. Right. Because we can, if we give up before we start, I mean, then we're, that's where we are. Right. So then the second step was yeah. your hope stage. I really liked how you called it a verb and not a noun. Um, because I, I always think about hope being like, I think it needs some definition to it a little bit, you know, because hope is, can be fluffy. Um, I hope that this happens. I hope that this happens. Well, what are you going to do to make that happen? Right. Um, so I like how you called it more of an action piece, um, and how it affects really your attitude and behavior and you can, uh, improve your hope or increase hope by prayer and meditation or just education. I love all those things. And I haven't heard someone talk about hope in that way before. Um, so I really loved that. And then prevail, uh, you know, that's where you came in and you're the victor on the other side. So you're using the adversity or the thing you went through to help change not only your life, but others, which I think is that beautiful thing. That is like another word for this is purpose, right? Um, Prevail and purpose. And so actually one of my questions for you today was how did you choose uh, just what sparked you to start sharing your story? But I think it's because of you uh, psychoanalyzing the background of it and realizing I went through this experience and I have to give back now. Um, but I'll let you speak, say it in your words. The interesting thing is that I used to be rather private about my, my health. And I, and I was very protective of not letting anybody know that I was a diabetic and I was extremely, um, secretive about it. So for me to kind of come out at this you know stage in my life was kind of an interesting thing on a personal level, but 
what what brought me there is that when I started having um, these heart problems and ultimately leading into transplant and and being on dialysis, I started in my business. I write a, a newsletter that goes out to about ten thousand prospects and customers, and I started sharing my story with them. I I would put a little piece of what was going on and. I found that people were responding to it, like they were writing back to me about their their stories, and I I like touched a chord with people. And part of it, I think, was because I had such a positive outlook, even though things looked so bleak. I always maintained a level of positivity, and and as a result, people responded to that, which surprised me. I wasn't I wasn't expecting that. Um, then I decided that I would use my story um, and and write a book. So I took the the newsletter as kind of the foundation for the book that I was to write. And in a way, strange sort of way, it started with a newsletter. So hmm. I I would have never have anticipated that it would have resonated with as many people as it did. But I realized that everybody. You know, you may have a, you may be fortunate enough not to be encountering adversity, but you know that eventually in life, everybody has to deal with something. Mm-hmm. I love how you, know, you so how, go ahead. No, you, go, you go. Oh, I was just going to say, uh, I'm not surprised that people reacted positively to you sharing positive things. One of the reasons I got out of the care, the dialysis care that I was in was because, not because I didn't love it, but because there can be a lot of shadowing that over that just overarches things, right? And so when you aren't surrounded by happiness, it's hard to be as happy as you would like to be, <laughs> um, you know, to be the ray of sunshine sometimes. So when people are looking, people are looking for that spark or that light or that hope. So I really see how this is all playing out here. You've gotten to the prevail and the purpose, and you are helping people to step behind you in the hope stage, right? You're helping give them that uh, good, better attitude. You're helping give them that inspiration or education that they need to get to that last step because they've already endured, you know, and now they need that hope, right? Yes, absolutely. Well, and in my book, I called the, interestingly, I called the um, chapter on dialysis the Green Mile, because I used to feel like walking through the dialysis chamber down the hallway to go to my chair was like, I felt like I was walking down like the, the death, death row, um, these people which didn't look like they were going to survive. And, and I was, t- I told one of the, the nurses about that, that that was my feeling. And she says, what are you kidding? What are you kidding? Dialysis gives people life. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, that's not death row. That's life's row. Yeah. So I thought it was, I thought it was an interesting perspective. And, and in a way she kind of opened my eyes to, you know, don't look at this in a negative way. This is, we're keeping people alive here. Yeah. Yeah. So, that's definitely true. Yeah, I thought, 
anyway, I thought that that was well. I love it. I love it. And sometimes we need someone to point out that optimism to us. And I was thinking as you were talking about it being a chamber, I was thinking I worked in a really beautiful facility <laughs> that was like probably unprecedentedly beautiful because the doctors in charge wanted it to be so great. So I had the fortune of seeing the nice plague, but I know what that means. I know what that's like um, being in kind of that, what seems like kind of a dreary place. Um, you know, this would be a good place to start talking about the book, but I do have one more question because it was on your list of questions and I just can't help but ask this question because I think it's, it, I'm so curious what your answer is. It was, how do you choose the right people to give you advice in life? Because I think sometimes, I, I, this is this is an important question that people aren't thinking about. I think sometimes we're just asking anyone for advice because we want to get the advice we want to hear. <laughs> and I think yes. this is a great question to stop and ask ourselves. I can't wait to hear your answer. Well, it is a great question. And the, and the fact is, is that in my case, I was, I had a special, unique um, circumstance as far as my, my heart was concerned. And when I would go to different doctors and visit different hospitals, I was getting a, a variance of opinions as to what should be done. And so for me, in some ways, it was confusing because, you know, how do I, as a lay person, know what's the right way to go and which doctor am I going to entrust my life with? So that's the question. Um, I had gotten a variety of opinions um, and, and also knowing that all hospitals are not alike. Some are more progressive and they're thinking some doctors are more, um, you know, they have different levels of experience. Some are older, some are younger. And so I, what I found ultimately is that, that there was this one doctor that I went to who said, how do you feel about transplant? And prior to that, I had never thought anything about transplant. I had never met anybody that had gone through a transplant. I never envisioned myself as being a transplant candidate. And, and I said, well, do you think that that would be something that I should consider? And he said, well, let me tell you this. I have heart transplant patients, but I can't get them to come back in my office because they're so like cured. And so that was, for me, that was something that nobody else had said. And I took that as kind of the, the start of, of formulating a strategy. And from there, he put me in touch with the doctors at Cedar sinai And then it was a question of, okay, which hospital am I going to go to for transplant? So Cedars, which was one of the leaders at the time, uh, was kind of the logical place for me to go. And that, again, it, it kind of goes back to what I said earlier about when you're in business, you try and avail yourself of as much information as you can so you can make the best decision that you can. And a lot of it's instinct. You have to have good senses of what's the right thing to do or conversely, what's the wrong thing to do. I, that sense? yeah, it does make sense. Uh, you know what it reminded me of? Uh, if I could give one, one piece of advice to people when they're dealing with medical stuff, it's to keep pushing for better answers and to be an advocate for yourself because um 
You know, you are really, and this is something, this is something we talked about in dialysis all the time. It's, is that this is your team is a, your care team is a, like the football team and you're really in charge. Um, and everyone else has a position, but you know, you're the one taking care of you and everyone else is taking care of a lot of people. And so being an advocate for yourself and presenting things and showing up prepared and coming and educated and informed leads to better outcomes. There is a reason you are the triple organ, uh, pioneer, right? Because you sought that out. You were a successful person prior. Uh, like you, you had to drive to do that. Um, so I think I, I was kind of wondering if there, this is partly personality type. Um, and I think you can grow into personality types too. I think you can learn to how to have a drive. So I don't think it's something you're, you have or you don't. But I think there's not a surprise here as to how you got to be the first guy. Uh, you said you wanted it, right? You, you sought it out uh, and, and found the right well, answer. My, 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 uh, the, the transplant doctor that, I had that discussion with afterwards we were talking because he was in the, the source of hope um, documentary. And the question was how, um, how is Jim able to succeed where others didn't? He said, he said about half the time I give people uh, transplant um, advice to get a transplant and about half the time, people don't listen to me and those people aren't around anymore. So that was pretty telling in itself. He said, uh, Jim, the reason he's here today is because he listened and he educated himself and he was willing to do whatever was necessary to, to do the right thing. So I think finding the right people is one thing, but also being decisive and listening to people is another. Yeah. It's mindset. They go hand in hand. It's mindset. Yes. I tell people on a regular basis that I pretty much only work with people on a basis of mindset, <laughs> um, which you get to do when you're when you're doing it differently. But um, but it's it's the biggest it's the biggest predictor of success, and that's it. Yes, you're right. You're um, right. So, Jim, how can people find you online, and how can they find your book? Well, the book, which again is "When Hope Is Your Only Option," it's available uh, on the traditional booksellers like Amazon, Barnes & Noble. I even did an audible version in my own voice, which was exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's available as well. Um, I have a website, which is jimstavis.com, um, where I post a lot of uh, blogs and um, you know, you know, where I'm going to be available. I'm trying to do a little more speaking if I can um, – kind of get away from my business a little bit more. And um, and that's pretty much it. And then I also have a Facebook, Jim Stavis Speaks page on Facebook as well. Cool. And if people email Jim at jimstavis.com, he has 12 books to give away, I think, is what I have written yes. down. Okay. I do. I do. I do. I do. Yes. Jim at Jim Stavis. It's S T A V I S. I think you guys can spell Jim. Um, dot com. Uh, if you want, and we'll put that, we'll put that in the show notes. Um, if a few people want a book. Okay, great. Thank you so much, Jim, for sharing your tale and your story and the secret behind it all. Thank you, Krista. I appreciate it. 
One of the best gifts you could give us at The Less Stress Life is your feedback. We are paid in podcast reviews. If you enjoyed this or any other episode, please leave us a review. In the iTunes store or from your podcast app, just search for Less Stress Life as if you're not already subscribed. Click on the banana face image, scroll to the bottom where it shows the text of other reviews, and write a review. While you're there, hey, make sure you hit subscribe. For Android or Stitcher users, you gotta go to the desktop site and search for Less Stress Life, and then scroll down to leave a review. Stitcher doesn't load Apple reviews on their site, so if you want, you can leave a review in both places. Your feedback means a lot to the success of the show. Thanks so much for taking the time to do that. You rock. 